If you would please take your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. We've been looking at the first, the past few Sundays um, and trying to construct a biblical theology of hate, which really sounds strange. Here we are at church, we've gathered to worship God, and we're talking about a right way to hate. Um, and yet the Bible does seem clear that God's people can hate and do so correctly. Listen as I read uh, several verses that deal with this. God's people are to hate evildoers. David wrote it in Psalm 26, I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Both the ESV and King James have the word hate instead of abhor. They are to hate idolaters. Again, David in Psalm 31, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. And then we are to hate the false way. In Psalm 119, the longest psalm, which we read this past week as we read through the Bible, there are several verses that touch on this. Uh, Verse 104, I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Verse 128, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. I mean, God's people are to hate falsehood. Again, from Psalm 119, verse 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. And then just sort of a general miscellaneous, we are to hate anything that is evil. Psalm 97, let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 8, verse 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. These last few verses are framed in, um, in the form of instruction. This is how you're supposed, this is what you're supposed to do. But I think someone might object that everything I've read thus far is from the Old Testament. And we are people of the New Covenant, of the New Testament. We are to be marked by love. Well, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Love must be sincere. You say, there it is. That's who we are. But he continues, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. As God's people, there are things we are to hate. More than that, as God's people, we are to mirror his attitude toward evil. So as we have done in this series, uh, we've sought to find out what the scriptures say about God and hate. Before we can get to us and hate, we have to see what it says about God. Because after all, it is his being, his character that provides the foundation of our lives, of our actions, our attitudes, of our ethics. We are made in the image of God the Creator. And as the creator hates, then we are to do so as well. As we've seen in the past weeks, it's clear that there are things that God hates. And we're told as much in scripture. He hates wrongdoing. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. He hates hypocrisy and lies. He hates violence, as we saw in Malachi chapter 2. This is just the beginning of a very partial list. Um, But it is clear that there are things that God hates. Um, and I think we should be very clear about that. 
um, we shouldn't try to soften it or water it down. I think we're glad that there's things that God hates. Violence against the innocent. I don't know if you've heard in the news or follow the news of the 10-year-old boy, Anthony Avalos, allegedly killed by his mother and her boyfriend. They've been charged with his murder. Hypocrisy. We want God to call out people who claim one thing but are in fact something else. Uh, lies, saying something that is not true. That's why, by the way, in our court system, perjury is a, it's a big deal. It's a big crime. You just can't go around lying. Actions against others. Crimes against others. Now, we may, in fact, disagree on what the penalty should be for a given crime. But I think we would all agree that crimes should have penalties. Otherwise, what does it say to other people? What does it say to children, our children, if in fact somebody can do something that is terrible against another person and not face any consequences whatsoever. So we are, I think on some level, comforted that God hates violence against the innocent. Where we get into trouble is when we get into other things, we're like, well, I don't think God should really hate those things. Um, But the reality is that he does. He hates those things which violate his standards. And his standards are based on the fact that he is holy. Our God is holy. And those who disregard his standards, those who break his standards or his laws, may expect his opposition and even his hatred. We see this demonstrated and lived out in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But there's something else that we see in Jesus, and that is that hatred is not God's only possible response to people going against his character. Those things that violate his standards. There is, in fact, mercy. And if there wasn't, then we would have no hope at all. So, having said all that, the response of God's people, or by God's people, needs to be that. It needs to mirror what it is that God does, or what he feels his attitude toward evil because we are made in the image of God. Now, in thinking back, I think I may have given a wrong sense of this earlier in the series. We should not think that we are miniature versions of a really, really big being that we call God. God is infinite, which means beyond our comprehension, our full comprehension. We are finite. So it's not like we're a mini-me of this big, really big God God is infinite, and we need to understand that. But God is also personal. He is the infinite, personal God. So we are persons who bear his image. Since he is personal, he is a person, we are as well, we bear his image. Which means, among other things, that we are not to act on instinct alone. We are not animals. We are not simply to act out of reflex. That there is, in fact, uh, the cognitive aspect, the affective aspect. We are to think about things, and we, we have the capacity to love that his other creatures do not have. This is where the matter of hate comes in. As I've said, the foundation of our study must be God, the God whose image we bear. But I think before we go any further, but also to give us a better sense of the whole business, we need to go back and consider God's act of creating. He is the creator. We are a part of his creation. We are creatures. 
Okay, so in looking at this, there are four questions I think that we need to ask and answer before we can go any further into our discussion or in the construction of a theology of hate. Discussion is not a part of our format in the, in the worship service, but I, I do hope that we will have fruitful conversations, not only today, but in the weeks to come. When we think of God creating, what are his attributes that we attach to his creating? Will, power, wisdom? When you read Genesis 1 and 2, which of these come to mind? Which of will, power, or wisdom? I think power is the first thing that comes to mind. Let me just read to you uh, briefly from the, f- the first week of creation. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, or to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And it was so. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The picture that we have is one of God speaking and it happens. And one could take this as sheer power. That God has the power to speak and things come into being. As a creator, he had but to speak and it came to be. And by the way, this is precisely what we hear in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea into into a heap. He put the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So indeed there's this aspect of power that God could speak and out of nothing God created the world. But I think we would also agree that there's a matter of will, that God is, God's creating is something that he willed to do, something he wanted to do, and therefore it was something that he did. Creation is not an accident, not something that happened without thought or with any uh, forethought. God, in fact, had thought about this beforehand. It was something he willed to do. But I think of the three, the third aspect is something that we completely neglect when it comes to creating, God's creating creation, and that is wisdom. Psalm 104, we read, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then in a verse that is found word for word, verbatim, twice in the book of Jeremiah, first in Jeremiah 10 and then in Jeremiah 51, But the Lord made the earth by his power. Okay, so we've got that. By his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. What this means is that when we think of God's creating, God's creation, wisdom is a major component. That is to say, God knew what he was doing and he did it with wisdom. The creation of the world wasn't a haphazard 
yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of bored, what should I do? Uh, God, in fact, knew precisely it was by wisdom. And as we saw in the, ser- the series on creation, this is but the first step in something that is leading to the new creation. So this requires some forethought. This cre- requires thinking through. It requires wisdom. And God, in fact, created the world in wisdom. That's the first question. The second question is, when does God stop creating? Perhaps you may have a sense from how I put things that when we speak of God's creating, we're speaking about that first week when God created the world, the first six days, and he rested on the seventh. Um, If I've given you that impression, I, I want to correct that now. God is always at the work of creating. He is always creating. In Psalm 139, we hear these familiar words. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, O Lord! How vast is the sum of them! If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. It's wisdom. It's all planned out. Everything about us is written down in God's book of life. So when we think of God creating, we shouldn't imagine that we're talking about something that happened long, long ago, and that you know God finished creating, and now by his will and his power it's continuing, but wisdom is no longer important. So that brings us to the third question. Which of these attributes are still in play? Is God's will still at work? Is God's power still at work? Is his wisdom still at work? It may sound like a frivolous question, but again, I think we may imagine that, okay, Damon, uh, I'll agree with you that when God created the world back then, it was his will, he chose to do it, it was his power, he spoke, it came to be, it was his wisdom, he had it all planned out. But ever since then, his wisdom is no longer necessary. Everything has been put in place. It's like having, a, I don't know, a track and it, everything's on track. And it is his will and power that sort of pushes everything down the track. But yeah, but his wisdom isn't really necessary anymore. He planned it out from the beginning. And so now that it's been planned out, it can just simply go on its own. He began the process and we are guided by his will and power. Yes, we are guided by his will and power, but wisdom is absolutely necessary. Wisdom is an attribute of God. It is absolutely something that cannot be set aside. We can't say, well, God doesn't need to be wise anymore. He doesn't need to exercise his wisdom anymore. He's, he's done the hard work, the heavy lifting, and now is just sort of cruising until Jesus comes back and we go to heaven and all that. Uh, no. God's will is at work, his power is at work, but so is his wisdom. This brings us to the fourth question. Which of these three attributes are involved when God hates? We have established that God, in fact, hates. And on some level, we're fine with that. Other times, we're not. We're really uncomfortable with the idea that God hates certain individuals, 
certain nations, institutions, practices. Yeah, we're just not comfortable with that. Other things, yet we're fine with that. But we've established that we, we are those who are made in the image of the Creator, and we have the capacity to hate. These are things we are to do correctly. These are things, by the way, which we tend to do incorrectly. I think every human being hates. I think all of us hate incorrectly. So, the issue of which attribute of God is involved in hating is really important. Is it simply a matter of the will that God hates because that's his will? Um, Is it a matter of power? Because God is infinite. He has the capacity to hate and to uh, condemn and judge. If it is a matter of the will and of choosing, then we can, I think, mirror God in that regard. If it's a matter of power, not so much. I think because we will usually come up short. And some people are indeed truly powerless. So their hate cannot be driven or motivated by power. By the way, at that point, I think it's when people sort of go outside the box, if we could use that expression, and they try to do things which will make them appear powerful, if not to others, at least to themselves. They may engage in criminal activity. uh, They may engage in violence. But they'll do something that will make them seem to be more powerful than they really are. I would suggest to you that wisdom is the attribute of God that is at work in hate. His will and his power is as well. But it is in his wisdom that the Creator stands against those practices, those things, those persons, those institutions or nations that are against him. It isn't simply a matter of will or power, but in his wisdom. It is profoundly a matter of wisdom. Uh, I wish that I could convey that uh, more powerfully. It's not a reflex. It's not like when the doctor hits you on the knee and your leg shoots out. This is something that is profoundly wise. It is God in his wisdom who hates. In Psalm 7 we read, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. In Psalm 9, he will judge the world in righteousness, he will govern the peoples with justice. So just as God is at work all the time in his creation and in his creating, by his wisdom, his wisdom is at work, this is seen in the fact that he hates those things which are contrary to his nature. Now if we are made in God's image, then we are to reflect his being, which means there are things that we are to hate, which we are to hate correctly, which means in part, we are to do so with wisdom. As those who are made in the image of God, we have the capacity to hate, and we do. But because of sin, we usually hate sinfully and wrongly. The image and the capacity to hate have been mangled by sin. And so we hate, I think, quite easily, more easily than we love but we do it quite wrongly because we do it out of reflex. We do it as instinct 
and not as the result of wisdom. We don't usually think of hate and wisdom in the same breath. But this is what we find in the creator whose image we bear. And that's why in the Old Testament, time after time, we are told to get wisdom. In Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Yesterday in our reading through the Bible this year, we read Proverbs 1, 2, and 3. And if you have your Bibles open, I'd like to read part of Proverbs chapter 2. Beginning at verse number 1. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. And he guards the court, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. And then if you would look at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And here we'll begin reading at verse number 13. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. And then, by the way, you'll notice that the writer turns to the matter of God's wisdom in creation. Verse 19. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop their dew. And by the way, in my notes, I have in parenthesis, still. He still does this. By God's wisdom, God is still at work in his creation. So, what is the conclusion of the matter? What are we to make of all this? If we are to hate as we should, we must have wisdom. And if we do, then we mirror, mirror, we reflect the image of the one whose image we bear. By the way, we've been talking all this time about wisdom. What is wisdom for us? When we think of wisdom, how are we to define it? It is the power to see It is the inclination to choose the best and highest goal. So it's much more than mere information. It isn't simply knowledge. Knowledge is an important component. But it is, in fact, the ability, the power, and the inclination to choose what is right. 
as we've read in Proverbs 2 and 3, this is something that comes from God. But it is also something we are to seek. It's one of those things that is a gift, but we are also to seek it um, as something that is uh, more precious than silver, gold, or rubies. So, if we as God's people, doing as God does, if we are to hate correctly, then we are to have wisdom. We are to have wisdom by God's grace. In Proverbs 1, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And again, this is not name-calling. These are people who are morally deficient. People who act out of instinct and reflex, not reflection. They don't think about it. It's simply a spontaneous They respond with hate. We are to love wisdom. We are to seek wisdom. And in wisdom, then we can, in fact, act as we should as God's people. In Proverbs 8, I mentioned this last week, we read, All who hate me, that is wisdom, all who hate wisdom, love death. We have a choice. We can either choose to pursue wisdom to love wisdom, or in fact, we will then love death. If we hate wisdom, then we will love death. The Lord willing, next week we will see examples of how God's people in Scripture is hated and hated correctly, that it might set a pattern for us as we seek to be wise in our actions and to be as our Father in Heaven is. But I would remind you here at the end, Hate is not God's only response to evil. Look at the cross. That's mercy. And on the cross we hear Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We should not imagine as we go through this series that hate is automatic. It cannot be automatic. It must flow from wisdom. There are times when mercy is appropriate, but there are times, if we are wise, when we will learn that we will know that we are to hate certain things. May the Spirit give us understanding. Let's pray together. Our Father, being fallen as we are, we imagine that we know what is best. And so when certain words are brought up, we, we just assume that we know. So when we speak of hate as Christians, we would say, no, we're, we're not supposed to do that. And yet, we find in Scripture that your people, your godly ones, in fact, did hate. And we find that you hate certain things. We thank you for your wisdom. We pray that you would give to each one of us the gift of wisdom. May we seek wisdom something more precious than silver, gold, or rubies. And in that wisdom, know how we are to respond. That we are not merely to act out of reflex, out of instinct, but out of wisdom, and above all, out of love. I thank you for your great love for us, your great mercy that even 
even when we hated you, you sent your son to die for us. What amazing grace that is. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you and ask that you would go with each of us the coming week. May your spirit speak to our hearts. Thank you for your great faithfulness and your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.